When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis. So I get some great ideas for episode subjects from my wonderful listeners. One such listener, Mary Virginia, recommended I contact the author we're about to hear today. So thank you so much for that. My guest today is Catherine Spoody, a former historical archaeologist for the National Park Service in Western America. She's written many books about archaeology and the history of the West, and also written for multiple publications and journals. She's here today to discuss her book, That Fiend in Hell, Soapy Smith in Legend. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, This is going to be fun. Thank you. (laughs) When did you first become interested in Soapy Smith? Well, I worked for the National Park Service, um, uh, for my entire career as an archaeologist. And one of my jobs that came up was to go up to Skagway, Alaska in the late 1970s to help the National Park Service plan how they were going to do building rehabilitations in that town um, as part of a commemoration of the Klondike Gold Rush. Part of the process the National Park Service has to go through is uh, making sure that no significant archaeological remains are going to be disturbed by any ground-disturbing activities. And so that was my small portion of a much larger project there. Um, as I usually do when I go um, off to a place that I don't know much about, is I began to read everything I could about the history of the Klondike Gold Rush and about the history of Skagway. So I imagine the first time I encountered Soapy was probably in the very first history book I picked up about the Klondike Gold Rush, because his story, the legend of what he did in Skagway is part and parcel of the Klondike Gold Rush and is one of those dramatic events that everybody 
especially in the popular press, wants to talk about when they talk about the history of Alaska, the history of the Klondike Gold Rush, and the history of Skagway in particular. So it was probably about 1979, 1978, when I first ran into Soapy Smith. Soapy Smith is a pretty iconic character in Western American history. But I have a lot of listeners from around the world who may not have heard his name before. Where has his character appeared in literature, television, and film? Well, Soapy's legend first appeared in books. And they appeared in popular books during the 1930s through the 1960s, during a time in which the Wild West, uh, the story of the Wild West was very popular in popular culture. People who were writing about him were often journalists who um, enjoyed writing a story in the method of a novel or like a narrative sort of thing in which dialogue could be invented and um, a story made very personal. And so the earliest and probably most widespread distribution of his story came during the time when the Wild West was was showing up on television and all that sort of thing. I do have um, a list of some of his films, but if you carefully look at this list, you'll find that his story is usually a kind of a minor accompaniment or embellishment on a greater story of the Klondike Gold Rush, because he's an interesting character and he adds a lot of character and color to the story. As far as I can tell, the only film that ever really focused directly on his story was a 1941 film called Honky Tonk, which um, starred Clark Gable. But because there was disagreements between MGM, who was making the film, and the descendants of Selby Smith about how the story would be told, MGM finally decided to change the names of all the characters and tell it the way they wanted to tell it. Since that time, as far as I can tell, the Selby Smith legend has been an accompaniment to um, the larger story of the Klondike Gold Rush. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but the series in the early 2000s, uh, HBO's Deadwood, had a character loosely based on Soapy Smith named the Huckster. Is that correct? Well, I yes, you could say that. <laughs> I would say that that particular character is actually based on that whole group of people at that time who were doing the same thing that Soapy was doing. So any specific, like in... In Deadwood, there may well have been a huckster, and it's just because Soapy has become probably the best known of the hucksters from that time period. Um, he has taken on the persona of the huckster. So when you have a, a character showing up in a movie that behaves in the same way Soapy did, there's a tendency for devotees of that genre to say it it was based on Soapy's life. Um, Soapy's life is based on the lives of every other huckster that was going on at the same time. So he wasn't, he certainly wasn't the only one out there. Sure. That makes sense. So, so I'd like to start by going way back to his childhood and formative years, long before he became known as Soapy. Where did he grow up and what were his early days like? 
Um, Suppy Smith was born in Georgia, Powhatan, Georgia, which is near, oh, it's about 75 miles away from Atlanta, Georgia. He was born in 19, I'm sorry, 1860, right before the, the start of the Civil War. His parents were plantation owners. He was well-educated, as was anybody in that area that had the relative wealth that they had. His father was a lawyer, and his mother was a genteel Southern Belle lady. Soapy was six months old when the Civil War began. By 1864, when Sherman pushed the Northern Army um, through to Atlanta and burned Atlanta, a great deal of damage was done to every place in the countryside for um, hun- for 100 miles around, including Soapy's parents' plantation. A year later, in 1865, the Civil War ends, the S- South concedes defeat, and the North begins to enforce laws organized towards reforming the way the, S- the South did business. Most of those reforms, of course, were focused on the institution of slavery, um, although there were a number of other political issues involved, largely that of states' rights and that sort of thing. In the process of what became known as Reconstruction, Soapy's parents um, lost their ability to make a li- livelihood in Georgia. They had 57 slaves in 1860. Those slaves were all liberated. The source of the wealth of plantation owners in in the 1860s was the number of slaves that they had working for them. Uh, so immediately his father lost an ability to make a living um, through the farming of cotton like he had been doing. And furthermore, Reconstruction uh, limited the, num- the amount of the law practices that could be done by lawyers in the South. As a result, Soapy's father was unable to practice law either. So after a number of years of struggling to make a living in Georgia, the family picked up and moved to Texas. They moved to a place called Round Rock, Texas. Round Rock in the 1870s was uh, a very typical cow town. It was at the terminus of a railroad, and the purpose of the railroad was to transport beef from uh, the rangelands of Texas to the eastern and Chicago markets and that sort of thing. As as a result, Round Rock was very similar to what uh, the popular culture would begin to identify as how Dodge City, Kansas, for instance, was. It, a wild and wooly town that was mostly devoted to the service of adult males, transient adult males who would come into town, blow off all their money, and then leave. So that the saloons, the gambling dens, the prostitutes became a very important part of the culture of these western cow towns. So Soapy moves into Round Rock, Texas when he's 16, 17 years old, uh, feels like he needs to make a living to support his brothers and sisters and a father that cannot make any money anymore. The first job that he has is as a um, salesman in, in a store. I haven't been able to determine what kind of store it was. I am imagining it was a general store of some kind. And he became, because of his incredibly charming and gregarious personality, he quickly became the best salesman on the floor. And as he honed his uh, skills, he began to realize that that he could sell anything for any price. And of course, it was to people's benefit 
or the, the salesman's benefits in those days to purchase items for sale at the very cheapest price you possibly can and sell them for the highest possible price you could obtain. So his hustle began when he was in his late teens, making people believe that they were buying bits of jewelry or that sort of thing that had very little value. And in their mind, he convinced them that these were good investments, that they were much more than than they appeared to be. And um, that's how his huckster life began. So we've been referring to him as Soapy, but he's not yet Soapy at this point, is he? Actually, he... I. I it's a little hazy about where Soapy earned the name Soapy. <laughs> but um, it certainly was the first time it shows up is in the in the mid 1880s in Denver, Colorado. But um, his family believes he was actually learning and picking up the skills of the soap game, even perhaps as early as his life in Round Rock, Texas, because it was a fairly common uh, con in which the huckster, the, the salesman, would uh, gather a group of people around, uh, start wrapping up plain bars of soap that usually sold for five or 10 cents a piece. He would wrap them in pieces of paper. And every once in a while to get the crowd all excited about what was going on, he would add a layer of a bill, like a $1 bill, a $5 bill. Some reports are he even used $100 bills. I find that a little difficult to believe because $100 in 1870s would be equivalent for, to $2,500 today. So even putting a $1 bill, which was now the equivalent of over $20, um, was a powerful incentive to the crowd. He would first wrap the piece of soap with the currency and then cover it over with the same kind of paper that he was wrapping the other bars of soap. He'd mix everything all up. A plant of his out in the crowd would volunteer to come forward and pay 25 cents or a dollar. The amount changed as time went on for that single bar of soap. And lo and behold, the person who was working with Soapy would always pull up the bar of soap with the the large denomination bill wrapped around it. Well, after two or three things of that happening, everybody in the crowd was clamoring to buy soap at a dollar a bar, which would be the equivalent of 20 or $25 a, a bar of soap today. <laughs> and of course, none of the, the common people ever got the big bill. But that was what became known as the soap gang. And Soapy was perhaps the best practitioner in history of the soap gang. And as he moved around the West, he acquired uh, that nomer, Soapy, which he did not like. He didn't like being re referred to as a slippery character. But people at the time also realized that that was a beautiful um, double meaning with his soap gang. And he was slimy <laughs> in terms of his dealings with the public. What did he prefer to be called? Just Mr. Smith? Oh, his name was Jefferson Randolph Smith. He went by Jeff, Jeff Smith. And I doubt that he ever referred to himself as Soapy. His great grandson, who has written a wonderful book about Soapy's life, is also named Jeff Smith. And so in my mind, I think of Jeff Smith as Soapy's great-grandson, and it's easier for me just to talk about Soapy so that I'm not getting confused with um, 
the, the man who has really written the most in the world about Soapy's life. So can you talk about his days in Colorado? How did he cut his teeth there? Yes, he stayed in Round Rock probably for only a year or two. And then his name starts showing up elsewhere in the West. And there's thought that he may have even gone to Denver as early as 1879 or 1880. Certainly by 1880, his name is showing up in his name and his reputation are starting to be made in the mining camps of Colorado. There's a whole folklore about Soapy in Leadville, Colorado, which was experiencing a silver rush at the time. People who really study Soapy can't find very much of that evidence. There's just some little bits and pieces of it, and it's more of the folklore than it is um, anything in solid fact. Uh, Certainly, he was operating and doing his soap gang and other types of cons in Denver during the early 1880s. And certainly by the late 1880s, Soapy had acquired enough wealth that he was able to purchase a saloon, began running his operations out of this saloon, and began to gather a following of people who would work with him to either run these cons or to enable him to do cons through uh, their manipulation of local politics in Denver. So Soapy Smith's mythical status really manifested itself during his time as a citizen in Skagway, Alaska. What was the town of Skagway like in the 1890s? You've already mentioned the gold rush. Is is that what brought Soapy Smith to Skagway? Right. Um, It actually goes back to his activities in Denver. In 1894, the city of Denver finally uh, was able to get a, a city council and a mayor who were sympathetic to the reformers, the moral reformers in the community. And as a result, a number of laws were passed in in Denver that pretty much eliminated the gambling halls and the saloons, or really restricted the amount of activities that could go on in the saloons and certainly closed down all of the gambling halls. That is how Soapy made his living. So he left Denver and wandered somewhat around the West trying to find a new home, kind of settled in the Pacific Northwest, reports of him in Seattle, reports of him in Tacoma. When the Klondike Gold Rush began in July of 1897, Soapy was poised and looking for a new place where he could get by with his nefarious activities because there was no formally established law and order. So alas, the Klondike Gold Rush was made to order for Soapy and the type of people that did the same things he did. He uh, So he was on, let's see, the, the Gold Rush began in late July of, of 1897. He was on a ship to Skagway by early September 1897. And he shows up in town finds a town in which there is no organized law and order other than the typical kind of policing system that's set up in, on these, in these boom mining towns. Um, Skagway had not existed in June of 97. It suddenly became a tent city in July, in July of 97. And probably by the time Soapy got there, there were a few slapdash frame buildings starting to be put up. But there were as many as one to two to three thousand people 
funneling through Skagway on a daily basis. And many of them were kind of starting to get camped there to see what the weather was going to be like as they, they took the trail to the north. As a result of these people sitting around trying to figure out what they were going to do, um, they became great targets for any of these hucksters that, that wanted to divert them by playing an, a gambling game that was fixed to benefit the person who was running the game rather than to benefit the person who was doing the gambling. Is he making a living mostly by gambling or does he have other things going on in town too? Well, the way Soapy usually tried to operate was once he'd get himself into a community that he felt comfortable staying in, he would make an investment in, in the purchasing of a saloon so that he'd have a base of operations. Throughout the fall of 97, I believe that Soapy was still trying to decide where it would be best for himself to work out with this. And he actually had the idea that he wanted to go on into the interior of Alaska, set up a, a um, the only, he wanted to get the, the monopoly on gambling concessions in Fort Yukon, which is at the mouth of the Yukon River. That was one of the routes that the gold rushers went into. He found out in order for him to do that, he'd have to go to Washington, D.C. and curry favor with some congressmen to get permission to be the only one that had the license to sell booze, to run a gambling hall and that sort of thing. So he really did not get back to Skagway until January of 1898 because he was busy throughout the fall trying to, uh, to get a license to run the kind of operation he really wanted to run. Uh, he did get that license, but when he got back to Skagway, he suddenly discovered that instead of 1,000 people funneling through Skagway, there were now 8,000 people at a time trying to get to the north. And he immediately began, he, he found that he could make tons and tons of money with his con games on the streets without having to to take the trouble to build a whole new business. Throughout the spring, well, the winter and spring of 1898, Soapy eventually curried the favor of the people who were really in control in Skagway. He was finally able to rent a small building where he could begin to run his saloon. And from what I've discovered, he really did not start that saloon business until May of 1898. Within Six weeks of him opening his saloon, he would, was dead. So he really didn't do what legend has said he did <laughs> in terms of running a saloon and conning every guy that went through town until very late in his stay in Skagway. By that time, he'd been in Skagway for five or six months, and he only had a month to live. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. 
If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So if you don't mind, let's talk about the last six months of Soapy Smith's life in Skagway, Alaska. First, if you could walk us through the historically accepted timeline of his rise to power from the saloon shootout through the spring and summer of 1898 and to his death. What what is the generally accepted history of, of his last few months alive? I think that everybody who knows Soapy's story can agree that two men were killed on January 31st, 1898. One of the individuals who was killed was a a worker, a common worker, who had gotten drunk and was hassling the owner of a saloon. And uh, the saloons in those days usually had bouncers. They called them healers at the time, but they were basically what you think of as a bouncer. The bartender who was kind of in charge of everything was whatever management happened to be on site at the time. When Andy McGrath, this worker, became drunk one evening and started um, yelling at the patrons of the bar and bartender, the bartender called in the owner. The owner called for the police and th- through a variety of uh, mishaps, the bartender ended up shooting and, and killing Andy McGrath and in the process also shot and killed the deputy marshal who had showed up. <laughs> to uh, to try to get this all straightened out. The uh, townspeople, of course, weren't very much concerned about Andy McGrath. 
but they were concerned about their deputy marshal because he had been one of the first people who had come to Skagway. He was a well-known citizen. He was not formally on the rolls as a deputy at the time because the fully established deputy was on his way to the capital of Alaska at that time, which was Sitka, uh, transporting a prisoner. And he had asked uh, James Rowan to uh, take over for him while he was gone. Uh, Rowan um, had very little experiences. He did have a little experience as a um, deputy marshal, but uh, it was more as a sheriff's deputy in, in the state of Oregon before he came to uh, Alaska. So um, obviously in a very chaotic, anarchic situation like this, um, things happen. And in this case, it was a case where two murders occurred on the same night. The townspeople, having no duly official law, appointed law officers, did what every community does in those circumstances. They called together what they call a safety committee. They had a public meeting. They voted to see what needed to be done to apprehend the criminal and to carry about justice. So that's all pretty well established that it, uh, as to what happened. Where legend begins to take over at this point is a number of newspapers, especially the newspapers in Denver who were following Soapy's career because he had been such a notorious person in Denver, picked up on the idea that, that somehow Soapy had a lot of power in Skagway and Soapy himself loved to promote himself. So he did not discourage stories that came out about how he intervened between the vigilance committee, which wasn't really a vigilance committee, but, but in his mind it was, and the bartender who had inadvertently killed the deputy marshal at the same time he was trying to control his fractious customer who definitely was displaying a gun and threatening to shoot and kill everybody in the, in the saloon. So over the course of a day or two, the, the community finally decided that they would incarcerate, well, they were able to talk the saloon community into turning over the bartender. They were able to get through their formal committee meetings a decision to take him to Sitka. They finally were able to get the U.S. Marshal on the, to come up to, to Skagway from Sitka. Uh, that took a number of four or five days for that to happen because communications were so poor in those days. And um, in reality, Ed Fay, who was the bartender that did the shooting, w was incarcerated in Sitka. Um, the legend that arose was that, that Soapy kept the vigilance committee from hanging Ed Fay and that he solely was responsible for um, saving Ed Fay's life. Uh, as a result, Soapy became a hero to a certain segment of the community in Skagway. He was at that time still viewed as a notorious and not law-abiding citizen by another segment of the community. So we have two versions of the story happening even right there. By middle of March of 1898, the Vigilance Committee had finally decided that they were going to try to control all of the gamblers in, in town. They weren't picking on Soapy in particular, but they issued an edict that all of the con men, the hucksters, the flimflam men in town had to leave town. And Soapy became irate. This was the source of his wealth at the time. 
and so he formed a group, a loose group of people of similar mind with him and um, began to publicize how wrong it was uh, and, and acted like Soapy really should be the, the, the source of law and order in town and not this committee of miners and businessmen who had been, quote, making rules up to that point, unquote. So in both the, the historic literature and in the legends, Soapy begins to see himself as the king of Skagway. There were a lot of people who disagreed with him at the time, but because Soapy and his descendants and the people that loved his story capitalized on this concept that maybe Soapy was in charge, um, his legend took off long before he even was killed. Let's see, what happens after that? Soapy gradually gets more and more press, and by the beginning of May, when he's just finally getting his saloon set up, Soapy decides he's going to take over a parade that is being formed to celebrate recent victories uh, of the United States in Cuba um, during the Spanish-American War. And all over the country, there were a number of parades on the 1st of May uh, that celebrated uh, the war success. And Soapy stuck himself in the process of, of organizing Skagway's parade. And... Um, there, there's a number of disagreements between me and and others who um, who are connoisseurs of Soapy's legend about Soapy's uh, role in that parade. But um, that's where his legend begins to show Soapy having great influence in the community. Uh, certainly by the 4th of July, which was about a month later, Soapy is inserting himself into all uh, public celebrations and the legend becomes that Soapy led the 4th of July parade. The 4th of July parades in those days were incredible events. That was the way the community really got together and celebrated. And certainly in the midst of uh, the Spanish-American War, the uh, 4th of July of 1898 was a major celebration all across the country. Four days after the 4th of July parade, when Soapy's legend has him at the very height of his power. Uh, a, a miner shows up in Skagway um, coming out of the Yukon with a poke of gold um, with almost $3,000 worth of gold in it. And um, Soapy's men try their typical con game to get that poke of gold away from the miner. When they succeed in doing so, the miner goes to the local safety committee uh, rather than to the, the deputy marshal that's in town, because by that time, the deputy marshal had been bribed by Soapy and his followers to uh, turn a blind eye in their direction. When appealed to the, the safety committee, the volunteer police force of Skagway tried to get some public meetings, um, basically city council meetings together so that we they could decide how are they going to handle this situation, try to get the guy's gold back for them. They thought the way to do it was to reason with Soapy. Soapy decided he was not going to reason with anyone. He, he was more faithful to his followers than he was to the, the businessmen in town who were trying to protect the reputation of the town. And by the end of the day, I believe it was a Friday, July 8th, 1898, the con took place in the morning. By that evening, there were mass meetings at the end of a wharf 
and four members of the, the committee, safety committee, were appointed to guard the wharf to keep Soapy and his men from going down there and disrupting the public meeting. Soapy shows up about nine o'clock at night, shortly before this meeting is to take place. Uh, he is armed. One member of the guards, of the four guards, is also armed. What results is a shootout, a classic shootout, <laughs> probably not not pacing each other off and um, shooting at each other. But the two weapons were fired at the same time. And a few moments later, both Frank Reed, who is with the with the vigilantes, is dead. And Soapy, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Soapy is dead and Frank Reed is dying. So that it was the death of Soapy. And, you know, it, it's great drama <laughs> to see to have him marching up with his gang, demanding to be led into the meeting. And um, Frank Reed saying, no, you can't go there. We've been placed here. And then, then um, violence that ensues. Absolutely. So, so part of what you've done in your book is, is find lots of new evidence on the real circumstances surrounding Soapy Smith. Could you dispel the myths for us? What was he really like? And how were the last few months of his life different than what has gone down in legend? Well, I think for me, the main difference is that Soapy did not have the amount of power that his legend says that he does in Skagway. He was uh, he was certainly a leader of of the saloon and gambling community, but he was not a leader of the town. Um, In fact, he Many of his friends were politically active in the city council, but Soapy himself was never able to actually run for city council. He told everyone he wanted to become the mayor, but he uh, he was a long way for, from ever achieving that that goal. But the stories that leaked through to Denver via his friends gave him a greater importance than he really had. So, unfortunately, these stories that were leaking through to Denver and sometimes would stall in Seattle and Tacoma on the way as they got there were exacerbated. The the telling of the stories were exacerbated by the fact that the ports along the West Coast wanted to monopolize the trade of the Klondike. They wanted to be the ones that provided the outfits for the the gold rushers, the, the Everyone who went to the gold rush had to have a whole a year's worth of supply with them before they were allowed to cross into Canada. So the selling of these outfits became a huge financial benefit to those port cities that could get the business to come from them. Skagway was setting itself up as a competitor because it wasn't that expensive to bring goods through to Skagway. Where it got expensive was beyond Skagway. So Skagway was trying to say, hey, you can just get yourself up here and you can buy your outfit once you get to Skagway. The Seattle, Tacoma, Victoria, San Francisco, all those places were trying to say, no, buy your stuff here before you go. And it was in the interest of the big newspapers in those cities to tell everybody how lawless and anarchical Skagway was, to convince them that they didn't want to spend any time there and that they should have their goods before they got to Skagway. So there was a lot of economic and political motive for how the stories of lawlessness were being reported in the lower 48. So as you've mentioned, the Colorado papers were sensationalizing Soapy's actions 
even as he moved to Alaska. Is that when he became a villain in the eyes of the public? Well, I think there were always a number of people who saw Soapy as a villain, as somebody who was lawless and outside the norms of what Americans, many Americans at that time were beginning to to take a much more uh, moralistic view on issues such as gambling, drinking, prostitution, and that sort of thing. This is an era when a lot of moral reforms are being enacted. And so there's a big divide in the community. Um, those people who believe that, that everyone should have the right to drink, to gamble, to use prostitutes, um, and have that be their own choice, uh, were running up against those who believed that an orderly society could only come about through the restrictions of those liberties. So there was a whole segment of the community that always viewed Soapy as a villain. There was also a large segment of the community that viewed Soapy as a hero and as a leader in, um, in protecting personal freedoms. What were some of the sources you used in your research of Soapy Smith? Well, because because like any legend, and my favorite Western legend is that of Wyatt Earp and the OK Corral, any legend that really gets going, gets started, is so embedded in what is viewed as what really happened that it's hard to tell the two things apart. And that's what was happening up in Skagway. To what extent were these reports of, of Soapy that were coming in through to, to Denver, to what extent were they being filtered through the lens of whoever was doing the writing? Uh, in the case of the Denver newspapers, there was one newspaper, the Rocky Mountain News in particular, that did that hated Soapy and was would write anything terrible they could ever find out about him. Other newspapers, such as the Times, the Denver Times, um, was very sympathetic with him and um, would would talk about his accomplishments and what a great leader and that sort of thing he was. So there was a lot of a controversy out there, and I knew that, and I had to I. What I did was I kind of worked my way back through time, found the current sources that I thought were the the most realistic, worked and read everything kind of back through time and found out where the very first reports were coming from and then read it all over again in chronological order. The newspaper reports, the magazine reports that were starting to come out. The um, I looked at uh, deed records that are in Skagway. I looked at the city records, such as who is purchasing land and who isn't. Well, and then I had to educate myself all about the local politics, which was quite an exercise right there, because so much of politics is being even today, is reported through the lens of political satire. And when people read um, newspaper articles that are very tongue and were meant as tongue-in-cheek at the time, there's a tendency to believe them literally. And so what I had to do is try to put myself in the place of the reader in 1898 and see what he was filtering through his brain and his knowledge of the local situation to understand that when a newspaper article talks about how Soapy took over the parade, the, for, the May 1st parade, they were doing it very tongue in cheek instead of it being a factual accounting of Soapy's influence in the community. So in order to get back to your question, <laughs> I've kind of gone off the subject there a little bit. 
basically I accumulated every report that I could find, both the newspapers, magazines, um, later books and that sort, and um, read them in the order that they were written so that I could pinpoint where the stories were coming from and what the motivations were of the people who were writing the stories. Yeah, that makes sense. So if I were to visit the town of Skagway today, would I see signs of Soapy Smith? How does his legend live on in Alaska? Oh, yeah. I mean, Soapy's, Soapy's stories is practically one of the first story that a tourist to Alaska would hear. And today, tourism is is huge in Skagway. Uh, there are massive cruise ships. So I've been in Skagway lately when there's as many as five or six cruise ships in the port, each of them have with, with several thousand people on them. And the story of Soapy Soapy's death in particular is great copy. <laughs> so the way his story is told most is through a local play that's given in the form of a, of a melodrama. And this melodrama celebrates kind of the whole background of, um, of the Klondike Gold Rush, but, but Soapy is given a very large part in that. And the way that story is told uh, is pretty much the way it's been told since the 1920s when tourism became very, very important to Skagway's economy. What does your title, That Fiend in Hell, refer to? Oh, that that quote, and I have it in quotes even in the title, what came from the man who killed Soapy, Frank Reed. It took Frank, 12 days to die. He was wounded uh, during the battle, and then um, he eventually died of peritonitis, which is uh, the infection caused by the wounds. And Frank was an interesting character. He was well regarded in the community. He had a little bit of law enforcement, but he was he was almost a blustery lawman type, and um, and also was... Uh, actually a town surveyor. He was the one who surveyed out the original lots for the town. Um, he was well regarded in the community and, um, he, he, he was the one who, who called Soapy that fiend in hell in almost a joyous manner because he believed that he himself had put Soapy in hell. But he also said that, that Soapy was a fiend. <laughs> And um, the phrase was recorded by uh, the Reverend John Sinclair, who uh, was a Canadian Presbyterian minister who was in Skagway at the time of the death. And Reverend Sinclair had a a very guilty conscience. He had not tried to reform Soapy when he first got there in May. He had avoided Soapy. And I think that that, in fact, Reverend Sinclair spent the rest of his life, which was about another five or six years, blaming himself for not being the person to stop Soapy's deprecations on the community. So do you think Frank Reed was aware that he'd killed someone who'd eventually be considered an iconic figure? It it is my opinion that the people of the community made Frank believe that he was the one who had saved Skagway. There is a great deal of controversy even today, well, especially today, but there was controversy at the time as well as to whether it was really Frank that shot, that fired the fatal bullet. But an inquest was held 
the next day, practically. And it was a nine-hour inquest by a jury that was appointed by the local judge. This coroner's inquest came to the decision after nine hours of interviews with witnesses, doctors, and that sort of thing, decided that it was officially Frank Reed who killed Soapy and that he did so as an act of self-defense. In essence, that made made it so that there would be no trial of any kind. They, I think the townspeople were afraid that the other person who might have fired the gun, his name was Jesse Murphy, may be prosecuted for a crime, and they didn't want to see any big trial coming out of all of this. As a result, they focused most of their efforts on arresting and trying Soapy's accomplices in the robbery because the townspeople believed justice had been done by by killing Soapy. And they had a little bit more of their vengeance on four or five members of um, Soapy's gang the following December um, during the trials on the robbery charges. What were the, the robbery charges? Well, it was beca- it had, had to do with the way they conned J.D. Stewart, who was the miner who came out of the, the Alaska, the way they conned him out of his poke of gold. Oh, right. And right. Uh, sure. the gamblers all said that they won the poke of gold in a straight gambling game. Of course, Stewart said, no, they picked it up. They hauled it away and um, they robbed me. Um, I was not gambling at the time. And so, of course, there had to be a trial to figure out who was telling the truth there. Ultimately, the federal courts did decide that Stewart was telling the truth, that he had been robbed, and that the men who had conspired to rob him of his 3,000, it was less than 3,000, but for all practical purposes, it was $3,000 in gold, that they were all sentenced to very long sentences in prison, federal prison, for doing so. Where can people learn more about you this book and your other work? Oh, well, I have a website, although I think that what what the, the author's website that's on Facebook is the thing that's most um, available to everybody. So if I'm, I'm sorry, not on Facebook, I'm at Amazon.com. If people go to Amazon and um, and search for my name, they'll find my author's site and they can learn more about other books that I've written and uh, something about my um academic training and that sort of thing that that helped me get where I got with this book. Well, great. Thanks again for your time. Yes, thank you for thank you for the call. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenus, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>